Corbynism The Postmortem is kindly sponsored by the Media Masters Podcast, a series of one-to-one interviews with the very biggest media names, hosted by Paul Blanchard. You can tune in anytime at mediamasters.fm. And now, here's the show. This is obviously a very disappointing night for the Labour Party. I want to also make it clear that I will not lead the party in any future general election campaign. I will discuss with our party to ensure there is a process now of reflection on this result and on the policies that the party will take going forward. It's not, it's not Corbynism. There is no such thing as Corbynism. In 2014, Labour's first Jewish leader, Ed Miliband, built cross-party consensus for a symbolic but ultimately meaningless parliamentary vote supporting Palestinian statehood. While the campaign for Palestinian rights has been a long-standing tradition on the British left, it has had little to show in the way of foreign policy success. When a stalwart of far-left pro-Palestine activism became Labour frontrunner, activists became hopeful that under Jeremy Corbyn the party could achieve more than Miliband had done. However, Corbyn's record of activism often went far beyond social democratic traditions, including public defences of perpetrators of political violence. And as that history came to light, many within the party began to raise concerns. Debates surrounding these issues descended into explicit hostility, as his supporters virulently defended him against questions regarding his history, considering any legitimate questions to be part of a coordinated smear campaign. The atmosphere quickly began to toxify, and as high-profile incidents, such as Corbyn's defence of an anti-Semitic mural, began to circulate in the press, Jewish Labour members who voiced their grievances became victims of anti-Semitic abuse. Questions about the meaning and history of Zionism and the existence and establishment of the State of Israel soon began to dominate Labour Party discourse, even at constituency level. This discourse, which often spilled into outright anti-Semitism, both online and in party meetings, was not taken seriously by the party, as conspiratorial thinking and abuse became routine. Instead of seeking to address past statements and associations, or the growing concerns about discourse, Corbyn's office, stacked full of loyalists, doubled down in dismissing and downplaying the problem, reinforcing a culture of denial. Before long, this culture would become endemic and would lead to Labour's Jewish members, particularly female MPs, facing intimidation, harassment and in some cases, death threats. The threats were serious enough that one Jewish MP, Luciana Berger, needed a police escort to attend the Labour Party conference. By the end of the 2019 election, Labour was down to just one female Jewish MP and was being investigated by Britain's Equality and Human Rights Commission for Institutional Antisemitism. Hello and welcome to Corbynism the Postmortem. I'm your host, Oz Katerji, and joining me on this episode to discuss the last few years of the Labour Party and the anti-Semitism that Jewish MPs suffered is the Labour Member of Parliament for Barking and the party's last remaining female Jewish MP, Dame Margaret Hodge. Hello, Margaret. Welcome to the show. Thank you, and thank you for having me. Um, You recently published an article in The Guardian saying Labour's survival requires more than just discarding the Corbyn ideology. Can you talk me through what the Corbyn ideology is for you? I can indeed, and um, the purpose of that article was not just to trash the Corbyn ideology, which I feel is completely outrageously hopeless and terrible and got us Labour into terrible trouble, but also to talk about some of the other challenges that we face. So why was the Corbyn ideology uh, uh, so harmful to Labour's chances? I think the first thing I would say, it's about his worldview. And he has, you know, he basically, he's got a very anti-American view of the world, um, uh, anti-NATO. You saw that in the response to this scripple poisoning in Salisbury. You saw that actually in his... The anti-Semitism, I think that came out of an anti-Western view. And that led to him being just not trusted with the defence of the nation. I can't tell you the number of people where I knocked on the door and people would say to me, I've been in the armed services. One guy said to me, I'm a squaddy, Margaret, I'm a squaddy, as if that was the explanation why he couldn't support the Labour Party. Just Corbyn's anti-Western view meant that he couldn't be trusted with the defence of the nation. That's the first thing. That's his worldview. The second thing was that his complete mishandling of the issue of the day, which is uh, Brexit, um, not only do I blame him for uh, failing to campaign in the early days uh, 
for a Remain position, which is absolutely where Labour should be at. We're an internationalist party. We're a, you know, we, we're a, it's a much more global party. We don't, we don't buy into this closed nationalism. We're not anti-immigration. All those features that uh, led to um, uh, the Brexit vote. But actually, the total fudge that we ended up with was just a disaster on the doorstep and showed actually what a useless leader he was, how incapable he was of uh, properly leading, properly deciding. Um, he, he tried to triangulate in the worst way that he would probably have accused uh, Blair of doing in the, in the high days of, of, of Corbynism. So that's the second issue. The third issue is the manifesto itself. And in that particular article, I describe the manifesto as the most reactionary document I've ever seen. And I believe that. And that's because it spoke to the uh, problems and challenges of the 70s and didn't speak to the massively difficult challenges that we face in 2020 and in, uh, in the future. So it was all about a big state solution. It was all about feeding envy of people who were rich, uh, punishing you know, this idea of a punitive set of policies around wealth. It was uh, all about uh, nationalisation, i.e. means being an end in itself. It was all about a very producer-led uh, agenda, working in the interests of the workers, the unions and the workers, rather than thinking about public services being built around the needs of the citizen that uh, have to use that service. So I thought it was an incredibly reactionary manifesto. But beyond that, it was, a, it was an absolute plethora of promises. And you could see, really, again, the politics of the 80s then, when I worked really closely with both Ken Livingston and John McDonald and people like that. And they thought you could build majority support for Labour by building what they used to term a rainbow coalition. So you'd do something that spoke to women, you'd do something that spoke to gays, you'd do something that spoke to uh, people of black and ethnic minority background. And by Speaking to each of these separate groups, you'd build a rainbow of coalition which gave you a majority. So that's what we did this time. We did something for students, promised them another bit of reactionary stuff, actually, promised them that we'd abolish tuition fees. We did something for the waspy women, the women who'd lost out on their pensions. And it was all, you know, it ended up actually creating fear rather than hope because it was totally unbelievable in its breadth and extent of its promises and unaffordable. So I think all that of the Corbyn agenda is, is also something, this idea that you can, you know, just tax the rich and spend through the, spend through the centralised state uh, was, I think, another uh, a mistake. And then the final thing that I think was a real disaster was we have become the nasty party, and that was best demonstrated through the anti-Semitism. Uh, and um, I never came into politics, really, uh, thinking that my Jewish identity would ever be part of my political work. It was just never there. Uh, and yet the fact that I became a victim of anti-Semitism forced me to uh, start campaigning against it. I came into the Labour Party to fight Racism, that's, that's what makes me Labour. So an immigrant coming into the country, it was uh, uh, the fight for equality, against racism, for international solidarity that brought me into the Labour fold. To then see the very party that had, I believe, that at its heart, as its heart and its soul, discriminating and uh, vilifying the Jewish community, it was more than I could bear. And I think... Interesting enough, when I first got involved in that, which was probably about 2016, 2017, when I started just experiencing a, a, a swathe of anti-Semitic abuse, particularly online, when I first got involved, um, people said to me, nobody understands what anti-Semitism is. It's a much too complicated a word. No, you know, nobody gets it. I can tell you on the doorstep in 2019, they got it. They got it on the streets of Barking. Uh, and they knew it was something nasty 
even if they didn't quite understand what anti-Semitism itself entailed. Defenders of the Corbyn economic project will say that um, Labour were engaging in trying to redistribute the wealth from the richest 1% to the other 99% and saying that uh, wealth inequality is the biggest um, issue facing Britain today and that no other party was trying to address it in the sort of radical, systematic way that Labour were. What would your take be on that? No, no, let's be clear. I think inequality is one of the biggest issues that we're facing. I'm not sure it's as big as climate change, but it is one of the key issues that confront uh, contemporary politicians. So I buy into that completely. What I couldn't buy into was the Corbyn Macdonald approach to tackling it. Now, I've been working on tax justice issues for the last 10 years, and a lot of that is about getting big corporations and high net worth individuals to pay their fair share of tax into the common purse for the common good. So again, I buy where they were trying to get to. It was just the story they told to get there, which was a story that sort of exploited uh, people's envy and uh, made ogres of the rich and, you know, uh, in a way that's unnecessary. What I and, and sits on aspiration a bit, and remember, everybody wants to go, wants a better standard of living, so everybody wants to get a bit better. What um, I tried... uh, Well, I learned from the 1990s, actually. In the 1992 budget, John Smith put a tiny bit of redistribution into that budget. And I was working at that time. I wasn't an MP, but I was working during the campaign in the um, uh, London office for the Labour Party. And we knew overnight, the moment that he had produced that budget, which impacted on... I can't remember, one and a half, two percent of the British population that we'd lost the election. Because even though that tax hike only impacted on one and a half, two percent of the people, everybody aspired to have a higher standard of living and therefore felt threatened by the higher taxation. So you've got to be really careful how you tackle the tax and spend issue. And what I've always done is approach it through fairness through that prism of fairness. And if you talk about fairness, and it's unfair that very wealthy individuals or um, huge global corporations can uh, use artificial financial structures to avoid paying their fair share of tax, everybody comes with you, because most people pay their tax unquestioning through the PAYE system. Everybody comes with you. You come to the same end. But what you haven't done is get there by sort of naming and shaming individual wealthy people in a very sort of negative way. And I just don't like that politics of envy that uh, they were promoting. So you represent a lot of working class constituents embarking. Um, How did the economic policies go down on the doorstep with them? The tax and spend, um, they just didn't believe them. It was an un- time and time and time again. I mean, the thing I got most on the doorstep was criticism of Corbyn, which I don't think people have been entirely honest about, this idea that it was all about Brexit and it was all about the media. is, from, in my view, for the birds. I haven't, haven't known a, a time when the media loved the left. So we've all had to contend with the media and we've all had our... Uh, um, ups and downs with that. So that's part of the real, real politique that you're you're dealing with. Uh, but the other thing that it was all Brexit, that was also for the birds. I mean, I'm my own constituent. Well, let me go back to your question, really, which was, did they like the promises? No, they just didn't believe them. And in fact, the way I tried to um, articulate it on the doorstep was, look, if you vote Labour on the whole... Labour tends to be the party that believes in the role of the state uh, to equalise life chances, to give people a more equal start in life, and therefore tend to spend more. And the Conservatives tend to be the party who want to have a small state and will cut spending, and therefore there'll be less available schools and hospitals and the criminal justice system. And if you said it in that, that way, I think that again people understood but if they suddenly saw these billions floating around uh, they just didn't believe that that was possible without imposing uh, taxes on them those of them that were in work. So you said Corbyn himself was a problem on the doorstep and you famously had 
some high-profile run-ins with Jeremy Corbyn and his leadership team. Um, can you talk me through why Corbyn himself became a problem on the doorstep um, for you? I think he's the worst leader I've known in my political lifetime, and including that Michael Foote, who uh, was a leader in, in, in the 1980s. But at least when you heard Michael Foote speak, he was an incredibly powerful orator. Uh, and, you know, with a very positive vision of hope in the future. So Corbyn came, gained the position of leader of the Labour Party on the back of hope. And I think I can understand that. I often say to people, were I 21 now, I probably would have voted for Corbyn in 2015 because he was the only one that was giving a message that you could build a better society, that you didn't have to have austerity. All that, I think, was credible. But, of course, that agenda and those beliefs are different from the sort of older, my-generation trots who gained power through the Corbyn machine and through the control of momentum, who just believe in you know, a revolution of different kinds, depending which bit of the ultra-left you belong to. Um, so Corbyn came in, actually, with a message of hope, and with that, but he destroyed it himself, and I think he destroyed it because I think that worldview mattered. I think if there's one job that really counts for the leader of the opposition, of the leader, of the, sorry, let me do that again. If there's one job that really counts for the prime minister, it's trusting him, entrusting him with the defence of the nation. People could not trust Corbyn because of his anti-Western view, uh, because of anti-NATO, anti-USA, defending the Russians and the Scripple, uh, poisoning um being reluctant, really, to condemn terrorist acts when they occurred on, on the streets of Britain. All that made him an, uh, somebody in whom they couldn't trust. That was one. Second was, he was seen to be nasty, and that's the anti-Semitism. Uh, they didn't want to vote for a nasty man in a nasty party. Thirdly, he was just seen as incompetent and useless. And I think probably the best example of that was the fudge we had over Brexit. Um, and fourthly, we were seen as a divided party. And that's one of the sad things. Labour's always been a broad church, always been a broad church. We live in a two-party system. We've seen that, you know, in that Change UK tried but failed. And the Lib Dems didn't do uh, at all well in the last general election. So we tend to be a two-party system. With, so you have to contain within your own party a very broad church. And what happened under the Corbyn uh, leadership is a growing intolerance of uh, different views. So, you know, you're in, the insults, you're a neoliberal that's something. I'm always being accused of neoliberal. I'm no, I, I think the people accuse me of that. I haven't a clue what that means. Because I hardly think that, you know, the work we did in government, whether it be investing in Sure Start or investing in the health service or the minimum wage or um, uh, the New Deal, I don't think any of those things could be called neoliberal, could they? But somehow we were neoliberal. That was an insult. Blairism has become a term of insult, although Tony Blair's the only guy to have won us 13 years of a Labour, of Labour government and uh, three general elections in a row. Um, and there's a fantastic intolerance in party meetings, which I hadn't seen since the 80s, when if you expressed a view that was at all critical, even in the mildest way, and I'm not known for my mildness, but even in the mildest way of Jeremy Corbyn and the Corbyn Project, uh, you were insulted, sneered, and uh, booed. And you know, quite a lot of people have come to see me who have been forced to leave their party meetings in tears because of the abuse they faced within the party meeting because they dared to disagree. So I want to go more into anti-Semitism in detail, but one final point on the worldview. A lot of people will, would say, the reason people had a bad impression of Jeremy Corbyn's worldview was the media were relentlessly hostile to him. It's nothing to do with the fact that he said Hamas and Hezbollah were his friends at a protest. It's nothing to do with the fact that he said that there were no mass graves in Kosovo. Um, it's not the fact that he, you know, said that 
the Skripal poisoning might not have been Russia. He kept trying to give Russia the benefit of the doubt. And it was just the media trying to um, miscategorize Jeremy Corbyn's actual positions, which were very pro-peace and anti-war. How would you respond to that? I'm not sure they were they were pro-peace, anti-war. I think they were pro-East and anti-West. That's how I, I would uh, uh, prescribe them, uh, just describe them. Um, I have not known, I've been in politics a long, long time, I have never known the media be kind to uh, the left. Never known it. Were they kind, you know, they weren't kind to anybody on the left. Kinnock, a terrible time. Uh, you know, then Blair was seen as Bambi when he first arrived. So the left, you know, Brown, do you think they were kind to any of these? Miliband? All of them have had uh, get attacked by the right-wing media. And you've just got to work with that. I mean, you've got to know that that's what's going to confront you. Uh, to blame it uh, and to disown any res- personal responsibility or collective responsibility for failure to overcome it uh, is in itself a weakness. So, of course, the media were hostile to him. Of course, he had a hostile press. Uh, but that's how it is with the left. And then he fed it, didn't he? He fed it. So by his acts, it's a bit like the anti-Semitism. He could have knocked on the head that anti-Semitism in 2016, 2017, 20. He could have knocked it on the head any time. He's quite stubborn. Uh, and, you know, I don't know what else. He's stubborn and hasn't got any insight, maybe is the kindest way of putting it. Uh, and he refused to refused to change or listen to what was being said about him. So I think it, by your, it's not what you say always, it's what you do. So the response to the Scripple incident was terrible, terrible. Uh, the response to terrorism was unforgivable. And that, you know, just saying, hang on, it's a more complicated problem. Of course, terror, all that, we know, all conflict needs in the end to be resolved in a peaceful way. But... Becoming partisan in whom you back is different from promoting peace. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. Now, I uh, I noticed with a, with a sort of sense of irony here that the last major um, time Palestine came up in Parliament was when Ed Miliband put forward uh, uh, a motion to, you know, recognise Palestine um, as a state, and that that passed through Parliament. Do you think he was a two-state solution? Yes, it was a it was mm. a two two-state solution motion, mm. and and mm. that, that which had... I don't think I don't think Corbyn supports. I think Corbyn believes that uh, Israel should be disbanded. So essentially, Miliband had built up bipartisan, cross-party support for that. And, and Jeremy Corbyn's sort of position is always, you know, I care about these issues more than anyone else. Do you think Jeremy Corbyn had the ability to build that sort of coalition to pass votes like that through through Parliament in the way Miliband did? Oh, absolutely. 100%. No. Um, I think if you... We're now moving really into the issue about anti-Semitism and its link into uh, the treatment of the Palestinians by the Netanyahu government uh, and Trump's policy actually on Israel as well. So it's a wider it's a wider agenda. I think I've known Jeremy Corbyn since 1983 when he first became the the, the prime minister when he first became the MP for Islington and I was leader of the council in Islington. So I've known Jeremy for a long, long time. And in 2015, when he first became leader of the Labour Party, people used to say to me, he's an anti-Semite. And I would say, no, he's not. He's an anti-racist. And, you know, that's what I believed. And it was only um, as time moved on and you judge people by their actions, not their words, that I realised that my judgment was wrong. Um, And... um, I think Jeremy, you know, whether you look at his response to the mayoral, whether you look at the people he chose to meet and those he didn't meet, so when did he ever meet? I mean, even the Israeli Labour Party cut off all their ties with him. It's outrageous. And he certainly never met any of the mainstream Jewish organisations here in the UK. Uh, 
the fact that he said things like um, Jews haven't got a sense of irony. Uh, and very recently, very recently, I was at a giving an after dinner speech at a uh, at a at, at a dinner which was full of professional Jews. So these were judges, academics, lawyers. Uh, people in the medical profession and I gave my speech and at the end of it some, a man came up to me who was a consultant at King's and he told me this story that had happened 10 years ago so it was before Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party he as the consultant had overseen the immunisation programme for some Muslims for the Muslim community who were going for the Hajj uh, were going back to the, for the harsh, and as a thank you for having overseen that program, they invited him to some celebration, harsh celebration in London. He went along. Uh, it was in some big hotel, and it was main, the room was full mainly, of course, of Muslims. And he's standing there, and in walks Jeremy Corbyn, sees him across the room, comes over, and says, "Oh, I see they've got the Jewish lobby here." And I said, what did you do about that? And he said he was so taken aback, he never did anything about it. But it's another indication of the sort of approach and attitude that Corbyn had, which led me to feel that um, it's not just he pro-Palestinian, but it, he was anti-Semitic. And I think the problem is complicated. The issue is complicated. So it's partly about not being able to distinguish between somebody being a Jew that being their identity, whether they're religious or not, or you know whether it's an ethnic what however you want to define that. Uh, somebody believing in the right of Israel to exist, which I do, um, after the Holocaust and, and endless uh, uh, discrimination and slaughter of Jews down the ages, and then somebody being a paid-up supporter of the Netanyahu fan club, which I'm certainly not, and I have spent all my political life being a staunch critic of most of the actions of most of the governments in Israel in their dealing with Palestinians. So he couldn't do, make that distinction. But I think there's another sort of batch of things that is going on in these people. So why has the Palestinian cause become such a cause? And why are the Jews stroke Israelis, stroke Israeli government seen as such a, a bete noire? And it's partly, again, tied up with anti-capitalism, so all Jews are rich, you know, part, uh, uh, a traditional trope, uh, therefore we don't like them. And that fits in, the anti-capitalist fits in with uh, uh, the ultra-left uh, orthodoxy. Partly it's anti-American, and Jews are seen as a pretty powerful lobby uh, in the States, and I think that all gets muddled, and it's partly pro-Russian, so it's all that gets muddled up, those sort of traditional discriminatory uh, attitudes, together with a failure to distinguish between ethnicity uh, and uh, being a supporter of the current regime in, in Israel, all that very quickly makes somebody purports simply to care about the Palestinians into an anti-Semite. So a lot of it is, again, I'm playing devil's advocate here and saying that a lot of Jeremy Corbyn's defenders would say, well, actually, it's, it's Zionists he has a problem with. He said Zionists uh, don't have a sense of irony. And, and he seems in his mind to be able to say, well, Zionists are one thing and, and Jews are another. And, and I can separate that and I can say whatever I want about Zionism because I don't agree with it politically. How would you respond to that? Well, again, what's the definition of Zionism? Zionism, actually, you know, the dictionary definition is somebody who believes in the right in a separate uh, state jurisdiction uh, for the, for Jews, and that's what. So, in the in the legitimacy of the state of Israel, I believe in that. Um, that doesn't make me a supporter, as it doesn't. You know, thousands of Israelis and thousands of Jews everywhere doesn't make me a supporter of the actions of the Netanyahu regime. In fact, I recoil from um, a lot they've done about citizenship rights. I recoil about what they're doing about settlements. I recoil, 
you know, at, at the uh, attempt to grab Jerusalem for their own without recognizing its importance um, uh, to the Muslim community and other communities. So I hate all that. I hate all that. But I do believe in the right of Israel to exist. So Zionism for Corbyn, you know, the, the right of Israel to exist is anathema to Jeremy Corbyn. And that's one of my quarrels with him. Although he doesn't say that. I know, I think that's what he believes. So you had a rather high profile confrontation with Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. about the issue of anti-Semitism. Can you talk me through sort of how, how that built up over, over the sort of weeks as the anti-Semitism issue grew? And, and talk me through that moment itself where you finally confronted him. Well, let me just say again, I never came into politics thinking my Jewish identity would be part of my politics. Indeed, I'm very totally secular. I was brought up, really, we assimilated. I was a refugee, you know, we came in as a refugee immigrant family, but we assimilated. I never went to synagogue as a child. Um, I've met and been married twice. Neither of my husbands were Jewish. So it wasn't, you know, and we never we never kept the Jewish festivals. So I didn't come in, but I started receiving a lot of anti-Semitic, um, uh, uh, horrible stuff uh, on, on, on social media. So I actually approached Luciana Berger and said, this is ridiculous, we've got to do something about it. And she at that time was chairing uh, the Jewish labor movement she was the parliamentary chair of the Jewish labor movement. So I went along to some of their meetings. Again, I'd never been before because I didn't think it was relevant to my politics. And we'd started discussing what to do, and it all seemed horribly processy. You know, you wanted to speed up um, uh, uh, the expulsion of Ken Livingston. They wanted to speed up the process of of people who were charged with anti-Semitism, all that sort of stuff. We then had the big demo in parliament, and we then had the controversy over whether or not the Labour Party would adopt the international, internationally accepted definition um, of anti-Semitism. By the time we got to, was the IHRA definition right or wrong, it had almost passed any um, discussion about it. So if you were, if you were zero, really clear about zero tolerance of anti-Semitism, you had to sign up to it. Now, I don't know whether or not that IHR definition allows legitimate criticism of Israel, the Israeli government. I think it does. Others disagree. Lawyers will disagree. But we got to the point where if actually Corbyn felt it did that, what he should have done was call a round table which he brought all the Jewish mainstream organisations, some of the Palestinian organisations, and discussed that definition uh, and sought to, 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 to develop an, a shared understanding of what was what the definition allowed you to do or didn't do. Instead, he uh, chose to ignore all that, you know, he, uh, and he just talked to the people. He talked to his friends. He didn't, you know, if you're really suing for peace, you talk to both sides of the argument, not just one. He chose to talk to just one side of the argument. And so the NEC was considering the IHRA definition. And we knew they chose to do it on the day that we had a really key um, debate on Europe going on in the House of Commons, which again, of itself, was ridiculous. And so we were all milling around the House of Commons doing this endless voting, bad day to choose. And the news came back that they had rejected the definition, led by Jeremy Corbyn himself. So it was really two fingers up to the Jewish community. Uh, And I was furious. I just lost it. I was really furious. And I was standing there with two friends. Uh, uh, And I said, God, I'm going to tell him he is an effing and uh, uh, anti-Semitic racist. And then he said to me, go on, Margaret, go for it. Uh, so I, But he was sitting on the front bench, and I thought, I'm not going to go for it whilst he's on the front bench. I'm going to wait until he walks out at the back. I was behind the speaker's chair. My two friends scuttled off, unbeknown to me, one of them going to tell the Huffington Post what I was just about to tell Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, and as I approached Corbyn, I thought to myself, the last thing I must do is swear, because if you swear, you un- you you know, diminish the impact of what you're going to say. So I did talk to him, um, and he responds in a very sort of passive-aggressive way. 
way to this sort of confrontation. He can't really deal with it. And he tried to say to me that there was, you know, clause 45 on page 78 in the in the document showed that he wasn't anti-Semitic. And I said, don't give me that. It's what you do, Jeremy. It's not what you say. It's your actions, not your words. And that he was creating a hostile environment for Jews in the Labour Party. And he just couldn't respond to any of that and walked off. And I have to admit to you that I thought that was it. I didn't realise my friend had gone to the Huffington Post. So I went off to the theatre, switched off my phone. And it was only when I switched it on at the end of a very good play at the Young Vic that I realised that all hell had broken loose and that what I had said to Corbyn was all over the media in slightly exaggerated terms. You are listening to Corbynism, the Postmortem, and this episode was kindly sponsored by the team over at Media Masters Podcast, who produce fascinating one-to-one interviews with some of the very biggest names in media. You can find them at mediamasters.fm. And now, back to the show. So, Margaret, I appreciate this might be quite difficult for you to talk about, um, but you mentioned that you'd received some hostile um, abuse uh, and so on uh, from people online anti-Semitic abuse. Can you talk me through some of that? Yeah, I hope you're, the, those people listening to this podcast haven't, aren't sensitive about language. Um, but if I just, re, you know, I've got reams and reams and reams of absolutely vile abuse. Oh, I should say before I start this, actually, that we know these are from people of supportive of the left. So we've only really, we've tried to isolate those that come from the right. Of course, there's anti-Semitism on the right. But these are ones that would be hashtag Jeremy Corbyn or hashtag Labour or something, which on the whole will make you think <clears throat> that they are from the left. So, you know, fuck, are you still alive? Thought you died a horrible death. Why don't you just fuck right off, you horrible specimen of so-called woman? I feel like puking at this moment, so fuck you for that. We need you out of the Labour Party, you vindictive old hag. Margaret Hodge is in Labour, but she isn't Labour. She's a committed gatekeeper for Israel. She's a traitor. Hodge, you and your millions have won. Well done. Give yourself a round of applause, you vile shit. The Zionist takeover continues. I'd reflect on the one million smear campaign financed by the Israeli embassy to prove Corbyn's anti-Semitism you bought and paid for, Zionist shill. Why don't you resign, you snake and traitor? Zionist is not Judaism, you godless witch. I mean, that's just a very few and some, a lot of call for my death and my hanging and my walking off the plank and all that sort of stuff. So it's pretty, pretty hard stuff, anonymous, but it's pretty horrible stuff that um, I and others have been victim of. And I think actually, you know, I just say I, I get three things coming together. I'm a woman and women tend to get more abuse on social media than men. I'm a Jew. And so I got a lot for that. And I'm old and put those three together. And it's a, it's a quite toxic sort of mixture but I don't think you know my younger women uh, colleagues uh, have faced equally vile probably you know maybe maybe age age works both ways but um, it has been pretty horrible. So you and Luciana and Ruth your other colleagues who received the the sort of full force of this uh, Every time I said anything about anti-Semitism there's a spike in the abuse I get. Every time I opened my mouth and dared to confront the anti-Semitism in the left, there would be a spike in the abuse. And obviously you, you try to take these to the leadership to say, this, this is being done in your name, Jeremy. And, and how did that... I mean, this wasn't just something that was ha- addressed in one conversation. This was the process of many weeks and months of yeah, trying, I mean, trying to get this across. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I sent a dossier of 200 to the leadership which um, a few months later, they never came back to me personally, but they publicly said, you know, hardly any of them were members of the Labour Party. I just don't believe that. I don't believe it. I don't believe they tried hard enough to to find out who was behind it. uh, And I don't believe their figures. Uh, We did discover through that the brave whistleblowers um, that there was direct political interference by the key people in Jeremy Corbyn's office 
in um, uh, the way in which they responded to allegations of anti-Semitism. And if you were a friend of Corbyn, you were let off. Where they did deal with it, they either delayed and hoped it would go away, or they gave a completely inappropriate response, given that they purported to have a zero-tolerance uh, view of anti-Semitism. So, you, you know, if you were a friend, you were you had to um, uh, you were just given an admonishment. Um, they they did away with the training that Jewish labour movement provided on anti-Semitism, which was well meant training because the issues are complex. So you don't spill over from a legitimate attack on the Israeli government into an uh, anti-Semitic diatribe against Jews. You know, you've got to you've got to, you've got to have some clarity and understanding of, of, of the boundaries there. Um, so all in all, it was just uh, absolutely appalling. And to this day, I don't believe that they have properly, uh, properly tackled them. I'll tell you what was interesting, something we learned, was that the more pub- if you gave massive publicity to individual cases, suddenly, miraculously, they would be dealt with. So Chris Williamson was a case in point, whereas I think that um, the fact that we just absolutely went public immediately and strongly in uh, our criticism of what Chris Williamson had said and done eventually meant that they couldn't do anything other than suspend him from the Labour Party. So we found, and and I've always, you know, one of the arguments people will say, "Why did you stay?" and "Why did you?" You know, a lot of a lot of my Jewish friends and colleagues left, and I took the view that you could be. It was as hard to stay in as leave. Actually, people said it was hard to leave. I think it was hard to stay in. So we shouldn't have a hierarchy of bravery in this um, in this uh, territory. Uh, and on the inside, what I felt I could do is. I could sort of voice, you know, publicly my criticism and they'd have to listen more than if it was somebody from an opposition party doing that. And I suppose really my main argument was I've been a member of the Labour Party for far too long, 57 years. Labour Party's been around for 120 years. The Jewish Labour Movement is one of the oldest affiliated organisations just celebrating its 100th birthday as an affiliated body to the Labour Party. Corbyn had had four years, and I wasn't going to allow those four years to destroy the values that had created the Labour Party that I had chosen to join 57 years ago. So obviously Corbyn and the Parliamentary Labour Party started to have a lot of tension between them. Can you talk me through some of your experiences uh, of the Parliamentary Labour Party meetings and, and how Jeremy would respond to criticism from his MPs and also how MPs and the leadership's office, you know, Seamus Milne, Kari Murphy, Jenny Formby, people like that, um, how, how was your relationship working together? My relationship? Um, I don't think I've ever sat down and talked to... Uh, Seamus Milne, he occasionally says hello to me in the corridor. I've never sat down with Kerry Murphy, although she promised me a meeting, but then became too busy to respond when I tried to set up that meeting. And I'd, I've never actually, I've never sat down and talked to Jenny Formby either. I do correspond with her regularly, but um, so I have absolutely no relationship with them. Parliamentary Labour Party meetings became absolutely torrid, particularly when Jeremy came because there would be a string of people, particularly on issues like the um, anti-Semitism, who would get up and make powerful cases, you know, whether it was signing up to the IRA definition, whether it was a discussion of a particular instance of um, uh, abuse that was around at that particular moment. And he just, he just is passive-aggressive. He would never, ever, ever, ever respond to any of the issues raised. So they were a really totally unsatisfactory uh, occasions. And you could see that they didn't give a toss really about the Parliamentary Labour Party. Seamus Milne would be sitting there and go out and um, brief something. So I always made sure I went out and briefed the opposite. And unlike him giving an anonymous briefing, I was always happy to have my name attached to my briefing uh, because I thought it was important to do that. Um, so they were pretty horrid, horrid, horrid. In fact, coming back after the election, 
to the, 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 the first meeting was pretty awful when we were talking about why we'd lost the election. But the second one I went to, and I'm not a regular attender at Parliamentary Labour Party meetings, um, the second one was I went to was when we had the hustings. And the atmosphere was transformed. It was more open, tolerant, calmer, um, serious. And there wasn't that sort of inbuilt hostility that Corbyn, Corbynism and Corbyn's people have brought to politics. What do you think Corbynism got right? Well, I think, as I say, in 2015, had I been young then, I could... I might have voted Corbyn because he came in after, you know, just for young people, they'd never known life before a Labour government. So their only experience of politics was of uh, Labour in power, the 13 years of Labour in power, and then the five years of the coalition government. Um, So uh, I could see why, you know, they, they were, they Austerity was hitting them. Uh, we'd had the big crash in 2008, 7-2008. Uh, so I could see why they wanted a message of hope. Life could be different. There needn't, needn't be all this inequality. There needn't be an underfunding of public services. I thought that was a strong message of hope. And you didn't get it from the other candidates who tended to be people who'd been political adv- come up through the political machine. So they'd been come through university, gone into politics as political advisor, and then become MPs. So they were rather managerial in their approach to politics. He was much more value-driven and visionary. And I could see it. And actually, there's a funny sort of left populism that he spoke to and got uh, got right in, in an age of populism. He's the, you know, he's not that dissimilar to Trump in a way on the left. Um, so I can, I see that. And I think... Uh, the anti-austerity, you know, did, did it take him to make it? I'm not sure it did. But if you, if you want to give him anything, it's probably um, uh, that campaign against austerity that was probably the hallmark, was the, was the thing that he can say he managed. So we're, we're now in the midst of a Labour leadership contest. What, what's your thoughts on it? And where do you think the Labour Party needs to go um, to move forward? Well... We, be talk- we spent a lot of this podcast talking about Corbyn. And what um, I wrote this piece about a couple of weeks ago was that actually the challenges this faces go beyond just, um, you know, rejecting Corbyn and rejecting the Corbyn, Corbyn project. Uh, I think the structural change in who supports Labour is a real challenge. So we've lost the support of older people who used to traditionally support us, and there are more and more older voters now, so that's a worry. We've lost the support of the C2DEs, the working class, who were always for us. The trade unions always used to um, deliver a strong body of support. Trade union membership is now down, and thank goodness not everybody listens to Len McCluskey nowadays in deciding what they do. So that sort of demographic change makes it difficult. We've also moved from an era where it was always the economy stupid that decided the votes to an era when identity politics and cultural politics and values become much more important. And I think it's much harder for Labour to get that right because there's such a diversity of views uh, on the left. You'll have you'll have in communities like mine rather a, a, a narrow view of nationalism You'll have an anti-immigration uh, idea, um, culture. You'll have a sort of people who believe that hanging them and flog them is a good thing. And then on the other side of that argument, you've got Labour supporters who are more interested in feminism, who are much more internationalist in their approach and who are much more pro-immigration. So how do you square the circle between those contrasting values? And then you've got this, our lasting values. I always talk about our lasting values. They're very important. I'm in the Labour Party because I believe in equality. I believe in equalising life chances. Uh, Now, how do you put that value onto contemporary challenges, uh, which are really tough, like uh, climate change, uh, terrorism, 
uh, artificial in intelligence and the changing world of work, immigration and globalization. How do you put those values into a meaningful way, in a meaningful way to capture the majority we need to be in power, to actually start delivering on the values that bring us all together into this broad church we call the Labour Party. Thank you so much for joining us, Margaret. Thank you. That was Dame Margaret Hodge MP, and as a special extra, I managed to catch up with the Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan, very briefly last month to ask his thoughts on the 2019 general election defeat. Hello, Sadiq. Thanks for joining me on the pleasure, show. Pleasure, pleasure. So what do you think the main lessons Labour needs to learn from the 2019 general election going forward for the future? Well, I think the first thing that we've got to do as a party is to recognise the scale of the defeat. We lost the general election really, really badly. I mean, you know, independent analysis demonstrates it's the worst election result since 1935. And I don't accept this uh, school of thought which says we won the argument. I mean, when I used to be a lawyer, if I ever lost a case, if I said to my client, well, we won the argument, I know what my client would have said. Uh, and so we've got to understand that we lost badly and ask ourselves the question why we lost. We've got to have proper analysis of why we lost and, and then work out the route back to uh, winning. And what breaks my heart is actually, you know what? Yeah, it is really sad that good Labour MPs didn't win, uh, good Labour candidates didn't win. But as a consequence of losing, we've let down millions of people across our country, and I'd say around the world, who need a Labour government to do uh, good. And so lots of lessons that we've got to learn. And we've got to have the humility to understand that actually to win general elections, we've got to persuade people who voted Conservative last time or Lib Dem or Greens or stayed at home to lend us their vote. And that means listening and engaging with people who might say things that we might not like. And it's really important we do that. Do you have any cheeky quick stories of uh, being the whip and uh, dealing with Corbyn? I was Jeremy's whip. I was John McDonald's. I was Diane's. I was Kate Hoey's. And the thing about Jeremy is he's a really decent man. And so... Uh, he would always be honest with me. As a whip, what you want is people to be honest with you. And uh, I, I, I really like Jeremy. I've always liked Jeremy. Um, and I was uh, in the whip's office when I told them that I liked Jeremy. He was always straight. They couldn't believe it. And uh, so the, the phrase was, to be a whip, uh, you, you, you apply what's called a charm offensive. And I was always the charm. And the chief whip was the offensive. <laughs> Thanks very Thanks much. Take care. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Corbynism the Postmortem. I'd like to thank my guest, Dame Margaret Hodge and Mayor of London, Sadiq Khan. And if you've enjoyed the show, please consider subscribing to my Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash Ozcategy. I hope to see you all next time for episode six. This episode was kindly sponsored by the wonderful Media Masters podcast hosted by Paul Blanchard. The show is a series of one-to-one -one interviews with the very biggest media names, and you can find out more at mediamasters.fm. Thanks for tuning in.